Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So on this episode, I'm speaking with physiotherapist educator and researcher, Dr. Claire Hebron. Claire is a principal lecturer at the University of Brighton, where she is course leader for the MSc in musculoskeletal physiotherapy. She has a special interest in musculoskeletal care and works with students and researchers exploring related areas such as health promotion, exercise prescription, and more conceptual research exploring understandings of abstract ideas such as therapeutic alliance, person-centeredness, and holistic care. And Claire has developed an interest in qualitative research, such as phenomenological, phenomenographic, and grounded theory approaches, and utilising research, integrating art, health, and science. So on this episode, we talk about Claire's journey as a PhD student exploring the dose-dependent effects of spinal mobilisation, the personal challenges of applying a somewhat reductionist research framework to a complex therapeutic intervention such as manual therapy, and also how these experiences contributed to her current interest in phenomenological and conceptual research, which she's utilised to explore the more complex and ambiguous topography of MSK practice. We talk about the false dichotomy associated with the hands-on or hands-off debate within MSK therapy. We talk about her rich and insightful qualitative work and how this research offers a perspective on the excellent work that physiotherapists are doing, but also where more changes need to occur. We talk about simple strategies to incorporate into your practice to begin a more psychologically informed way of being as clinicians. And Claire reads a powerful poem from a physiotherapist experiencing back pain and the individual's own feelings of guilt and embarrassment, which really caused me to reflect on my approach and stance to patients who are also health professionals. So I'd originally planned to talk with Claire about the current but perpetual debates within manual therapy, and I was absolutely delighted not to dwell on previously well-trodden discussions. And it was telling that a conversation by two MSK manual therapists focused on the topics that we did and is hopefully indicative of the journey other individual clinicians and whole professions are making away from patients being viewed as mechanistic bodies needing fixing towards being people with complex situations, histories and experiences that need our support. So I bring you Dr. Claire Hebron. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. So we know each other from both being doctoral students at Brighton back in 1992. Gosh, is it that long ago? <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's 2010 or something, but it feels like it. <laughs> well, I have been at Brighton since before 1992 in some guise or another. So uh, <laughs> you could make me believe it was that long ago I started my doctorate. But you're, and you might not know this or you might know it, but you're, the reasons I became familiar with you both being doctorates, but also the, your work on, at the time, manual therapy or mobilisation and looking at the dose-dependent effects related to that. I was obsessed with that idea of thinking that if you kind of did stuff a certain amount, a bit like a pill, if you took more of it or less of it, does it have some uh, difference or does it affect the effect of, of treatment, in, in which in this case, kind of pain perception or, or pressure pain threshold. So I kind of was really, and I started my PhD looking to to do that topic, to look at the dose spent effects. And I sat down with Anne Moore, who you know and no doubt know, know her very well. And she said something to me like, okay, that's really interesting, Oliver. How do osteopaths decide on their dose? Like, How do, how do they decide the kind of dosage they're going to give using my air? quotations to patients and there wasn't any literature on how osteopaths make decisions around treatment and then I went down this kind of rabbit hole of qualitative research and clinical reasoning essentially that was so I pursued that but up until that 
time I was I'd written proposals to do to kind of follow on from some of your work. Wow. Gosh, I didn't know that. Well, yeah, no, I think first I think this is you introduce you and your academic and clinical background. Academic and clinical background. I qualified in the early nineties and took a typical clinical pathway was a rotational physiotherapist and really enjoyed spending time. I really enjoyed neuro. I actually did a senior job in neuro rehab for for a while as well. I really enjoyed that. And then I became increasingly drawn to musculoskeletal. And I can't really remember why it's so long ago. Gosh, you have to think what your motivations were. I can't remember. Hmm. I, I think I just fell into things along the way rather than it being a, a predetermined path. So I ended up back at Brighton with Anne hmm. and Nikki, Anne Moore and Nikki Petty doing the masters in at that time it was called manipulative physiotherapy. And I suppose that consolidated my my love of musculoskeletal. In the, in the broadest sense, I, I really enjoy mm. the, the varied nature of musculoskeletal, that somebody comes in and something happened yesterday and somebody else comes in and it's been there for 35 years and, and just the varying human interactions that are part of mm. musculoskeletal care, the, the getting to know people. I really enjoy that. And that's part of my everyday work. Well, it was until COVID part of my my work now hmm. and i i really love those interactions and when i during my phd i actually stopped clinical practice hmm. for a while it was just one thing hmm. too much at that time working full time and having young children and doing a phd and i since being a full time academic clinical practice was evenings and weekends I couldn't manage that anymore. Hmm. I really missed it. And it was it felt so luxurious and almost self-indulgent in a way to go back and work in. We've got a clinic here at the university, the Leaf Hospital, to work there treating persons that wanted some some help and guidance, really. And in, I want to say back in those days, it sounds like it was last century. Well, it was last century, but, but was it? Minutive physiotherapy synonymous with MSK physiotherapy. Yeah, so, it was the the MACP yeah. pathway. And at the time, there were varying course names depending on where you did it, manual therapy, manipulative physiotherapy, and similar, similar names. And those names have evolved yeah. over time, as, as everything does. And so... So for the non-UK listeners out there, MACP is... Is the Musculoskeletal Association of Chartered Physiotherapists that was at that time the Manipulative Association of Chartered Physiotherapists. So we're always in a state of change, aren't we? And our language yeah. and our use of language evolves over time. And so the, the stroke of luck was both terms began with M. Yes. So there's <laughs> so there no change in the logo or anything else. And so that change with the MACP, the shift, I guess, away from manipulative was to, I guess, that also coincide around the same time from the change in name from the journal, Manual Therapy to Journal of Muscular Science and Practice. And there's a subheading. They occurred around the same time, I think, within a few months. Yeah, within a short space of... And they were all influencing one another, really. So you told us about the clinical aspect you were, which you missed during your, your PhD. But maybe tell us about your doctorate. And you haven't got to share in every gruesome experience as a PhD student, but maybe just the, the journey of your PhD, where you started, where you ended up. And it might lead us a bit on to where you are now in terms of the research work that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting to hear you talk about that journey you explained at the beginning about you were thinking about doing something around treatment dose and 
and ended up on that qualitative pathway. And I think I probably did the opposite, that I, I was playing with the idea of qualitative research at the time. And then I was getting some advice that, or some opinion really, that the philosophy was just far too complex to, to be able to understand. And, you know, I'd need to know being in time in and out before I could possibly do phenomenology. And, and I wasn't brave enough, I think, at that time. It felt less, what I understood as, as an uncertain journey and a traumatic journey as a PhD was probably going to be magnified by making that choice. And like you, I had wondered for a long time about dose and the lack of literature there is supporting treatment dose. And surely it's like taking a quarter of a paracetamol. If you don't do enough, well, it's not going to have any effect anyway. So, but what's enough and what's guiding us? So I did end up going down that route. Mm. But you know, all PhDs have their ups and downs. I, I, I'm not sure that there are any without them. But I did feel conflicted during the journey. And I, I think part of it is there's nothing like actually doing research to understand the challenges, the difficulties, the holes in it. Mm. And and you can hear criticisms of research from 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 persons that possibly haven't actually done it, and you think, well, I, I get your criticism, but the reality of doing research is very different. Mm-hmm. I th- I suppose an example like of that would be when we're looking for biomechanical effects and we don't see biomechanical effects, we don't see changes in range of movement. But when you start to get in a lab and try and measure range of movement and look at the variation within normals on move- one movement and the next, you you kind of see the magnitude of difference just in how we move mm. from time to time. And then you're trying to attribute something to something we've done when actually it's something that's highly variable mm. anyway. So is it because the biomechanical effects aren't happening or is it because we can't see it because we're trying to, to get to something that varies massively? And seeing that change and how we measure it is enormously difficult. So I I looked at lumbar range of movement using electromagnetic sensors. And my within session minimal detectable change was 22 degrees of flexion. It's on normal individuals without pain. (laughs) This is hugely challenging. So, and, I, and I think so. The, the, those criticisms, you think, have you actually been in a lab trying to measure those things? <laughs> and I was confronted by some of those challenges. Mm. You, you, the other thing you m- mentioned earlier, which really resonated with me, Ollie, was about how do we decide on that dose? And, and actually, it's quite pragmatic. And it's in negotiation with the person. So how do we standardise something in a clinical trial when we don't in practice? And then somebody's randomised to a particular dose and you're, you're applying a dose thinking, I would never do that on this person in clinical practice. This is the person, in fact... On this person, I'd never apply this particular treatment at all. I wouldn't use mobilizations on this individual. But they've come into the trial and they've been randomized to this group and that's what they're going to get. And you realize that actually just doesn't represent what we do. So the challenges of this sort of finding this objective truth were really hitting me in the face and challenging 
my belief systems, I suppose, and my beliefs in what we can do with quantitative research and how it reflects what what we do as physiotherapists. And how did you get to that? How did you start off with those sorts of questions, you know, reduced, biomechanically orientated? Is that did the, the question? I know that you said you you know you'd considered some qualitative work for your doctorate before, but decided against it. Was that kind of where you were in terms of your thinking or your practice? I think at the time, that's what was what was coming out. That in the time I started my journey, a long time ago. I mean, I can't even remember. My my children were tiny, and they're sort of. 1819 now so it's a long time ago that that is the research that was coming out mm. and i i felt secure in being in what was happening at that time which isn't the advice i would give a doctoral student now i'd say mm. look for the crystal ball what are we going to be talking about in mm. 10 years time that's what you're hoping to land on but i wasn't brave enough i think in reality, mm. my reality was I wasn't brave enough. <laughs> so was there a tension when you were doing your doctoral work? Were you positioned where your study was? Or were you like, you know, I've got to do this thing. I've got to, you know, I've got to do this trial, apply this intervention in a, in a somewhat standardised way, recognising that this doesn't represent my practice at all? Because that must be quite a tricky tension to have because you kind of have to live your doctorate, don't you? You've got to, you know, you've got your obviously your position as a researcher, which you hope, or well, it's easy if it's congruent with your position as a person or, or a clinician, but it sounds like maybe in your case there was a bit of difference there. I think you summed up how I felt really well, <laughs> that, that there was this conflict. And in actual, in actual fact, during my doctorate, I did the first phenomenological study that that I was involved in, which I look back at now and think, oh, how phenomenological was that? I'm not I'm not quite sure I would would today call it phenomenological, but um, but that's you know we all learn and evolve over time, and what we do changes and improves. That that's that's otherwise it would be mm. a shame, wouldn't it? So. So I think that was why I ended up doing that, that it gave me something that actually I felt more comfortable with when I was experiencing dissonance in, in my PhD journey. And so maybe just outline, uh, outline some of those studies that, that, that made up your PhD. You haven't got to go into huge depth, but just the general gist of the design and what you were looking for or, or measuring. Um, I was looking at the effects of different treatment doses, so essentially one minute and six minutes of mobilisation, sort of at the margins. So what yeah. what is the least that we would probably apply and what's the most that we could practically apply within a treatment session? Then thinking that was about six minutes. And if there's a difference between those, then perhaps it's worth looking in between. Yeah. And we'd done some earlier research on on asymptomatic individuals that did find that there was within the first 30 seconds or minute it didn't it didn't matter a significant hypoalgesic effect as an experimental measure of pain with pressure pain thresholds. And that that significant effect then sort of rose gradually as you applied more sets to reach significance again after another four sets. So it wasn't plateauing. Mm. There, were, you, there were these small incremental gains after this first initial quite strong hypoalgesic response. But asymptomatics are completely different. And... Um, we wanted to look at, or I wanted to look at that in in a symptomatic population, thinking, does does it matter? And I also measured force of application, which was pragmatic. So it was negotiated with the individual person, mainly because you couldn't 
ethically to to standardize force in a symptomatic population is is challenging because you might be creating too much pain on somebody that that just wouldn't be ethically acceptable and there was a significant mediating effective force so with higher forces there were higher levels of hypoalgesia in in the symptomatic group a very very chronic group so the mean duration of the current episode of low back pain was nine Mm. years okay because because it is reasonable when we're doing manual therapy that there are those parameters whether it's force location amplitude uh forget whatever maintenance what are those other those, those components it's perfectly reasonable to think when i'm doing manual therapy unconsciously or otherwise these these parameters are tailored to the individual so if they're tailored to the individual then they kind of must matter otherwise that's not person-centered manual therapies so intuitively we're, we're manipulating the parameters if you like to meet that individual person and not necessarily or not certainly their kind of biomechanical individuality but all the stuff that comes with any individual expectations beliefs all that kind of stuff but nonetheless we're we're tailoring those parameters to the the person as a whole what's that all about you know what, what so i think it's a it's a perfectly reasonable question but i see what you're saying taking each parameter individually and looking at effects from changing the 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 kind of dials if you like starts to remove that interaction between them all yeah and when designing any any experimental design like that you're thinking about standardizing (laughs) most of the components but you can't in a clinical population and then, then you're missing also specific elements of a, of a technique. So one of the components that you, you didn't mention was position. Mm. And there, it, we, I, I'd ruminated for hours over the decision about, about whether I could alter the position pragmatically. So I rarely treat somebody using mobilizations in sort of lying in prone it would be in some flexion or extension or lateral flexion or or standing in a functional position or in the crouching position they are Mm. whatever it reflects their symptomatic aggravating factors and yet in this study that was that that positioning was considered to be by some critics a treatment in its own right and therefore it wasn't the mobilization mm. but surely this is intrinsically part mm. of that dose so yeah i was there applying some of these treatments thinking i just wouldn't be doing it in this position why am i doing this what did you learn from your phd if if you were somewhat skeptical of the the study designs and the the meaning of some of the findings. My sense is that it's, it has sent you on a trajectory into a more qualitative line of inquiry. So you've obviously learned something about yourself or or the sort of research that doesn't seem to to resonate or make sense with you. Yeah, I mean, look, there's no such thing as a perfect study. We're all trying to to find how to optimize any study design and there are always challenges and PhDs research training I learned an enormous amount about quantitative research and how to to really look at the pitch bigger picture while reading any quantitative research paper so so just because the 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 messages I'm coming out with are not all positive, I suppose, it doesn't mean that it wasn't a positive learning experience. It was challenging. And, you know, this, we are so, there's so much belief, I think, in this objective reality through quantitative research. And I'm, I'm just not buying it. <laughs> I, I still like uh, being part of 
quantitative research, but my passion is with qualitative research. I mean, listen, the, the Beatles had some bad albums, right? And so some of my some of my some of my work, I just shudder at the 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 reductionist nature. You know, I was doing and and I think it's it's probably probably well, I think we are being unfair on ourselves, or at least, you know, looking back, that, that work was done at a time when it was that was the, the the way that much of the the work was going. It was trying to break down a complex interaction into component parts, so it could be you know tested and standardised. And but yeah, looking back at my early work, you know, I, I I've done work when I've just prodded on people's stomachs and looking at the perception of pain around the back, and it's all it's not where I am now. And we're all on a journey. And I would hope that my work in five years time I'll look back on the work today and think hmm. oh I'm not I'm not so proud of that anymore <laughs> because otherwise I'd be standing still I, 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 but I'm not hmm. neg- critical of it it's just part of the journey and hopefully we're always growing and improving and getting better. So on that in terms of the journey the the sorts of work that you're producing with i'm assuming students as well the you know every other week there's a a tweet from you with a really juicy qualitative paper just published and these topics are you know wonderful from therapeutic relationships to clinicians clinical reasoning their experience of of incorporating things like pain neuroscience or or aspects like that and there's a lovely paper looking at and i'm going to get the title wrong but it's something like therapeutic alliance and physiotherapy is it all it's cracked up to be or something like that is it is it uh, is it sufficient or is it adequate maybe yeah something like that which was just had lots of grab and kind of said grab me and said read this paper but the so the stuff you're doing now is, is truly wonderful and such a nice range of of topics using predominantly ipa or phenomenology well thank you very much for such a beautiful summary of what we've been doing. Um, yeah, I think it uses a, a various methodologies, to be honest. So there is phenomenological research. We've used IPA often as a, a, as a method of analysis. But there's also phenomenographic. So rather than looking at concrete lived-through experiences it's also looking at the rhetoric and the the conceptualization and understanding of things like health promotion for example is one of was one of the articles and and management of of low back pain how do we understand mm. and conceptualize this rather than how is this experience lived through and meaningful so Subtly different, um, I, I suppose. Mm. Well, one could argue subtly different, perhaps not so subtly different. And also some, some grounded theory and some concept analysis. So looking mm. at those concepts in the literature and how they've, they're present and evolved over, over time. And that was, that was the, the methodology on that paper on the therapeutic alliance. So I'm interested in the, the, the linkage from... During your doctoral work and early work, it was about parameters of manual therapy, biomechanic effects, um, effects on pain perception. And then at some point you, you transitioned or found your way into doing more of this work into experience and process. They seem like worlds apart. So they're obviously different paradigms, but the fact that if you're interested in biomechanics and pain perception in people then you're kind of interested in how they're interpreted or experienced or the processes around you know clinicians work around those constructs so that so i guess i'm interested in that linkage between the two because on the face of it they're two separate types of research but actually there, there is a, a path there or a kind of journey there which is entirely kind of coherent and makes sense. Yeah, 
I think it, the the therapeutic care is at the centre of uh, centre of all of it, yeah. <laughs> and I still use mobilisations in with some persons receiving my care. I, I wouldn't have any reluctance in mm. doing so, particularly if that person has had a favourable response in the past and comes in going, oh, I've had this before and it really worked for me. Oh, I'd be straight on it. <laughs> uh, you know, you'd be looking a gift horse in the mouth, wouldn't you? But it's within a completely different framework of therapeutic care mm. and alliance formation and and shared decision making and you know even back in the day when I started my PhD it would be about exploring how that person could use that technique themselves at home mm. you know all those years ago we recognized that the effects weren't going to be long term it would be ridiculous to think that we could apply a force for a few minutes to the human body and it would have a greater effect than natural history. <laughs> it's, it's weird that we might think that, isn't it? That this thing that we're mm. pushing on something or anything we do is, is better <laughs> than the body's own ability to, or person's own ability to, to heal and mm. find a, a way. And for, for most people, that is the case. But obviously, there are the complexities that come with more persistent pain conditions. There are these, and I've been guilty of setting up these false dichotomies where it's kind of manual therapy is either kind of reductionist and biomechanical and dualist on the one side, and then there's this approach to research and practice, which is much more embodied, much more holistic. And you're either in one or two camps. <laughs> you can't, you can't, and, and yes, to some extent, some of the assumptions, if I present them like that, they are mutually exclusive. But there is a, like all these things, a middle ground to be had where you can both want to do the best for the individual, recognise they're a, a person with feelings, emotions, experiences, and you can't you know, separate their body from all of those things, but also touch them or do some touch, which is which we call manual therapy because it's being it's touching in a certain direction, at a certain amplitude, a certain you know frequency or rate, whatever it is, um, to create a, a a response in 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 them and, and with them. So yeah, it's just you know, and I, I as I said, I've been guilty of seeing seeing it like that you either and that's the kind of hands-off hands-off argument isn't it you're either you're on this camp or that camp where it's just it's much more nuanced than that I, yeah I agree with you I think it is more more nuanced I completely completely think that and the 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 that sort of black and white dichotomous position that you're that you're referring to I think is really evident on social media in quite an aggressive way, I, I think, and and quite a male-dominated way. No offence, Ollie, um, but it's interesting because that really doesn't reflect the research that we've done. Looking at physiotherapists' lived experience, they are very much incorporating when we when we ask them to talk through live through concrete experiences could you tell me about thinking about a specific person that's received your care could you tell me about that as concretely as possible in as much detail as possible could, could you walk me through that as though i was there and their descriptions of these concrete situations very much show that they're really buying into this multifaceted approach to physiotherapy with, with the person at the centre of it with, and their recognition mm. of the nuanced nature of communication is is really positive there are still things that that that's, that aren't in their accounts that are interesting but th th it's very different 
the data that we see to the rhetoric that I see on social media. And that brings us a bit on to your paper that you wrote or co-wrote with a with a what is it, an A list of authors, but certainly Toby Hall and Valdi Powson, who's been on this podcast, who's one of my first or second guests. And you wrote a paper 2017, can according to reconceptualize manual therapy, pretty much in in the terms that you've just described now, a much more and I'm hesitant to say a biopsychosocial model, but what else? What other word do we have to use? But a, a holistic doesn't seem to do it. Contemporary, I think, probably contemporary person-centered way. And so, for me, it was it was a lovely paper. You go there's, there are kind of five case examples of patients and where you would or you wouldn't or you might do manual therapy, and presented some of that that kind of uncertainty, that clinical ambiguity that we're faced with, um, and reflects practice much much better than than the the way that I just those two dichotomies yeah I think that's that that paper we we it was really great to be part of that team working on, on that paper I felt very privileged to work with that that group because they're all very contemporary thinkers and and see the nuances of of how we apply things in in practice We've all got a similar viewpoint, I think. And what was the? How did that arise? Whose idea was it? And did they? What was it in response to anything particular? Yeah, it was in response to the this sort of dichotomous debates on social media, essentially that we see. And um, and it, Martin and Neve really brought the group together and and led on writing the paper. Yeah, it was a really good good team to be part of and I hope it's brought into the into the sort of debate and more nuanced discussion in some way and and so does that reflect so you you teach manual therapy or manipulative techniques as part of your academic role yeah I teach musculoskeletal physiotherapy I've got to say I don't teach manipulative techniques anymore I can't remember the last time I applied one in somebody receiving, as in a high-velocity thrust, in somebody receiving my care, mainly because it, it's I'm, I I work in Eastbourne, I suppose that's so I have a certain demographic, and it nobody comes in wanting this high-velocity <laughs> thrust. It, it's and and for me, it's the most difficult to convert to a home exercise, whereas lots of the other techniques I mm. can can help people to sort of think about ways they might do a similar thing at home to get that temporary analgesic effect. Yeah. Whereas with a high velocity thrust, for me, that's more challenging to, for, the, for the person to see the parallels between yeah. what I might do as a, a physiotherapist and what they can do at home. So I, I, we do, I don't teach that myself. Other people come in and teach that because I've got to have some credibility. I've got, if I haven't done it in the last 10 years, I really shouldn't be teaching it. But it, but it, sorry, it's, it's interesting. It's the same, I find the same that firstly I do very few HVTs or, you know, high velocity stuff in clinical practice, partly because the it, it's hard to, so with the, with the kind of Moby stuff, you, like you said, you can use a, a framework of language, which is, which is related to kind of movement and com- being comfortable and easing and kind of de-threatening terminology, which kind of explains about what you think's uh, what, what, the, what the what your reasoning behind the treatment is, and doesn't cause the patient to to freak out or catastrophize or have unhelpful beliefs. But with the clicky clicky stuff, it's hard to really use. I haven't really perfected my spiel <laughs> about how to describe the clicky clicky stuff. It, which is which is both sufficiently different from the mobilization. So it's got to be different. There's got to be a reason why you're doing the clicky clicky stuff and not the mob stuff. And I've got to start to use descriptors which I'm not that comfortable with, both because they're potentially a little bit um, surprising to the patient or don't reflect really what's going on, you know? Yeah, I think that I completely agree it's quite difficult to frame. And um, for me, the other thing that I find challenging about it is the concept of our power 
in the therapeutic alliance. And power is something I become more and more thoughtful about, I think, and, and how it is within the therapeutic alliance and how we can negotiate power balances that, that occur. And I'm not sure that that is really being thought about. That is one of the things that's absent in the research. We're not seeing that physiotherapists are, are thinking about power conceptually. And, and there's a lot going on that I think the structures that we work in give us power in ways that we possibly haven't thought about very much. What do you wear when you're practising, Ollie? So I used to wear... No, actually, when I graduated, as soon as I qualified, as a trainee osteopath, you wear a horrible tunic thing, white thing, which you look like something from the 1940s. And... That was the kind of smart dressing clinic. And then as a clinical tutor, I would wear like a, a short white doctor's coat to, and the, the students would wear just the tunics. So it would be clear that, you know, you're not a student. Now in clinical practice, I just wear a shirt and a pair of reasonably comfortable trousers, um, but nothing more than that. So, but I've worn polo shirts. I've worn, but now I'm currently wearing aprons and gloves and a, <laughs> and a mask and a visor. But yeah, I, anything which which is to create, some perception that I'm professional, um, but not so formal that, you know, that they feel like they're going to, I don't know, they're seeing, I don't know, they're at a business meeting or they're, do you know what I mean? So it's something comfortable for them yeah. and I. And I wonder whether you work in, in different contexts. Would you, would you adapt your clothing? So if you worked in, in, for example, in a homeless centre, would you go in in a different clothing to you wore in if you're working in the city or? Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think I, if I was, you know, if I was at a different site going into, like you said, a homeless shelter, me rocking up in a kind of shirt and shoes and, tra you know, whatever, chinos. People still use the word chinos, <laughs> but chinos. I would I would feel uncomfortable and I perceive that they might feel a bit uncomfortable. It's just all a bit weird, isn't it? It's fit that environment. I'd probably if it if it was I'd probably rock up in something much more casual, a pair of jeans and shoes and a t shirt or something yeah. like that. I'm just not sure how much we think about these things. And and also even within departments, what, what we're we're finding is that in the research, one of the things that's coming out is through our number of studies, is this sense of hegemony within the clinical, within the work, within the workplace, and actually you see that that when you get to a band, whatever it is, or an advanced practitioner, suddenly you're wearing a different uniform and setting yourself apart. I mean, not deliberately, but it does set you apart, and then. For example, our, our, the students on the post-reg masters, who are often very senior clinicians, go on clinical placement and they're, they're wearing a different, different clothing. Well, that signifies certain things to pers the, the person receiving care. What messages is that giving and are we aware of those? And it makes me think a lot about semiotics and structuralism. And those sort of philosophical... I know you listen to some philosophy stuff as well, don't you, Ollie? I try to. I just had a... I'm just about to uh, release a podcast with David Nichols. Oh, yeah. Who's very into, you know, power and the structures which kind of drive pretty much where we are. And so... Um, yeah, I think his PhD drew a lot on Foucault, didn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And biopolitics and government and... Yeah, exactly. And his, his books, I think... Are, are you know there there well there's the end of physiotherapy and then uh, the more recent one mobilizing knowledge and physiotherapy as well but really interesting and starting to to criticize or at least illuminate some of those power structures which we are just not aware of yeah you know i don't think i've thought about it until more recently but and I think becoming aware of it, suddenly it's like the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm not sure how many other people can see the elephant. It's just like, <laughs> how can nobody see this <laughs> elephant? It's it's huge. <laughs> and I and I also think about what whether you know, lots of the physiotherapists that that come on the course I lead um, are working in NHS departments. Well, it is quite a discreet department in the hospital. Does it have to look like a ward or can it have pot plants and soft furniture? Can we invite the person to bring a cup of tea into the first clinical encounter? It, it would completely change mm. the expectations of, of persons receiving care. And we criticise persons for their biomedical views. We want to sell this other, other view, this more holistic, multidimensional understanding, but we bring them into a biomedical environment. Yeah. And I think there's a conflict there. And, we're, you know, there's this idea of selling or getting them on board with this other way of thinking, and yet are we creating the right environment to do that we're, mm. we're setting up expectations without realizing it and that just reminds me of one of the papers which which was again had a lovely title selling chronic pain i, I seem to remember that and it, did that touch on some of those those topics yeah it certainly did uh, i mean what came out was again that physiotherapists are really doing there's been a massive shift they're buying into the therapeutic alliance into communication and i i use buying in because actually they're buying into it conceptually but in other work we've done there is some ambivalence so for example, when they when they reflect on themselves in these discussions, they, they do in interviews, they often say, but if it was me, I'd want the scan. If it was me, I'd be looking for a diagnosis. If it was me. So while they're selling this and buying into it themselves, there's still some deep-rooted it, it takes time to shift, isn't, doesn't it? You know, why wouldn't they? And, of course, there's variation in that data. But it, it, it's interesting that, you know, our world is full of positivist language and um, dualist viewpoints, mm. isn't it? So it's hardly a surprise. Mm. And I think... Um part of what has come out in other work is that at least within osteopathy that many clinicians are on board with with the you know bps in whatever kind of form it, you know we might um describe it but it's kind of operationalizing you know they might say okay i kind of you know i'm totally on you convince me that recognizing you know the person as a person and not just a collection of anatomical bits i'm you know i'm on board with that and I'm, you know, I'm convinced that pain is a is an emergent experience. But ultimately, what do I do? Like, what, what you know, these are the kind of tools that I have that were imparted down to me, onto me, and um, fr from my training. I'm not quite sure how to turn this new conceptual framework into a series of things that I do with a patient. So, so often what they describe um, doesn't necessarily map to what they're actually doing with patients. So, yeah, that, that could explain some of that ambivalence. Yeah, and we see that in, in qualitative research, that ambivalence that you're talking about, Ollie. It, it comes out and often in, in a way that when you're asking about concrete examples, there's a change from, well, I did this and the person did this and she, to we, physiotherapists, patients. So it, it changes from a... a a concrete description to to rhetoric, really. And it's often in periods of uncomfort or discomfort that you see that. Um, but uh, there are really good operation, examples of operationalization. For example, I said, I said about communication and using the person's language and using analogies that really resonate with that individual 
and they're giving concrete examples of 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 these related to specific persons mm. what the rhetoric comes in has seemed to come in with a bit more with shared decision making and and i th- i think that it's actually quite challenging in physiotherapy because you've got lots of different options but they're actually all quite similar and it's not like going to see a surgeon where they can say oh well we we can do nothing or this operation has this success rate hmm. and this risk of death and whatever we don't have those differences between the treatments we offer so it's very it's a different thing shared decision making to 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 that you see in the literature it's again very subtle and so that's one of the things we see this rhetoric with and the other thing is the the sort of dealing with managing the more existential dimensions of of somebody's experience so those more psychological factors but that really varies between mm. between physiotherapists so that there's some who say that this is out of my scope and some that are really finding comfort in actually you don't necessarily need to do anything it's the listening it's the empathy mm. it's being present as as maxi michiak you talked to her about all those things in that podcast which was was really lovely and and really resonated with me those discussions so anybody mm. listening to this should go back and listen to that one <laughs> and the, the other the the episode I did with Steve Ogle a colleague of mine and we talked about that some of the that students probably and clinicians too get anxious when wanting to make this shift to a more psychologically informed way of, of being oh there's a whole lot of complicated psycho skills which I just don't know and I've got to go on a course and learn about motivational interviewing and this technique and that technique and and it's bare bare bones the basics is like you said it's just a to to give respect or time to the individual to share their experience and 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 listen i mean that's if you did if you did nothing else but just keep the mouth closed or you keep someone's just allow someone to speak you're kind of doing you're doing psychologically informed practice if you like absolutely and also this this if you think you're doing cognitive behavioral therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy well maybe you are then working outside your scope because Mm. unless you've had specific training in that field actually we're using some of the principles of some of the the value systems within those those techniques we don't have to do a wholesale move to this particular method and and for me you're also listening to that person's story and and using like a bricolage approach well what am I hearing in this person's account and how can I use some of the principles which which one of these principles resonates with this person's story so you you know if somebody's just so down on themselves and harsh on themselves which I hear a lot in clinical practice you know I'm so rubbish because I haven't managed to do this that and the other the exercises on top of everything Mm. else in my life well actually we need to be kind to ourselves so a more compassion focused philosophy might work with with somebody like that and just to recognize actually our days are all so laden is it a surprise that you didn't manage to do any exercises, even though you'd set your, your mind on doing that? And even though I said it's just a case of just listening and all will be well, as you pointed out, it's what you're listening for, what you're attuned to. And if you're really just waiting for the next location of pain to be expressed by the patient or a, a body part, then you're still going to miss the point, no matter how much you listen. But it's actually the sorts of things that you're, um, I've got clinical gaze, but from an audiological point of view, where that's sitting, what that's focused on. Absolutely. It's, it's got to be about this person's story. 
And um, I'm actually doing a, a course at the moment. Have you spoken to John Lorner at all? No, no, but he, he does the narrative medicine stuff. He does the narrative yeah. medicine. And I, I'm taking part in one of his courses oh, online, wow. which is, is great. And, you know, it has similarities with some things I've done before, but, but differences. And, again, it's this being attuned to the, the, the person and their stories and picking up on things that are, are, are important to them, really listening and being attuned. That idea that, that persons don't throw away these comments randomly. They're, they're meaning-laden. Mm. I think two things on that point to Tom Jessen for the Physio Matters podcast did a lovely podcast with John Lorna. He did. I've listened to that. Yeah, really good. And the second thing, just as you said, is that, and maybe this is what came with my qualitative work, is that you know, in, in qual research, you're so attuned to the participants' words and phrases. You really don't assume meaning in, in, the, in the things that they're saying, but you're interested, you're kind of interested in the kind of the underlying um, uh, meaning, if you like, or the co-constructed meaning. And I think that carries with it in clinical practice, carries over onto clinical practice that when someone says, like you said, um, oh, I'm really down, I didn't do my exercises. It, it, in one kind of reality, we'd be like, oh, that's a shame. You move on to the, oh, you move on to the next question, if you like. Whereas having that, that moment of pause and just picking up on that, that might give something away or might be so there may be something underlying Absolutely. that which is worth exploring. And you're, you're quite right, this qualitative work really makes you listen in different ways. And of course, with qualitative research, you, you dwell in that data for, for so long. <laughs> um, but what you just said also made me think about some of the things we're doing at the moment, Ollie, which are, are working with, with poetry and stories to to illuminate people's experiences, person's experiences, and also to elicit empathy and understanding in, in the reader, to ask them to pause for a minute. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I can read you a bit of a poem if, if you'd like. Please, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is, I'd, I'd like to thank Raffaella Kurtz. She's She's uh, a physiotherapist who's doing a master's degree that uh, that I that I'm working with at the moment, and she's looking at the experience of coping with low back pain. So persons identified themselves as coping. Okay. And this participant actually happens to be a physiotherapist. So it it's it has layers of meaning for that reason. So I just read a part of the poem. Coping means hiding it. I pride myself on nobody knowing. Nobody knows here about the disc lesion, the foot drop. That's my history. I've always been very fit, very able. It was a blow to my sense of self. My body let me down hugely. That whole sense of disability hit me very, very hard. When I was still unwell, I catastrophized. I thought I'd need surgery. It takes time, my colleague said, and immediately I felt better. In pain, you are lost, no matter who you are. At work, it wasn't appreciated. There was a sense of disapproval, I think. People thought I should be better, I think. People thought I was attention-seeking. I think. No colleague was ready for the time it took, apart from the one who was understanding, validating my experience. That's why I was so grateful. Why am I hiding it? It's part of my professional identity. It's embarrassing having backache like our patients. I'm distancing myself, not to be seen as patient-like. I don't want people to know me as disabled, exaggerating. So that's all oh, participants' words. Yeah. I mean, there's so much there, isn't there? I mean, there's so much that they're, even them kind of 
explaining their ex- their own experience of pain or um, disability through the, their knowledge of the literature, if you like that kind of you know they're, 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 that's fascinating. And then having colleagues that have had you know significant back pain and sciatica and and all the kind of psychological tricks is the inappropriate word, but you know strategies that we might use and they use for themselves just doesn't work. And it's, yeah, I can see that the bit about embarrassing, it's embarrassing. It's, and I think that goes with maybe the, the, often the thrust to, to, to reassure and to downplay symptoms. It's not serious, kind of get on with it. The natural, natural history is really good when it, when it either takes time or is extremely, extremely unpleasant even as a clinician where you're aware of all of that stuff it's still has all those emotional and psychological effects that that are played out in the poem yeah definitely and it it's it highlights some of the things we've talked about earlier that we're still immersed in this world that's very biomedical and even though we understand that there's a there's a different narrative those things run deep within us particularly when it's when it's us and all those experience about being judged and having to hide they're all experiences that run through the data not just for this physiotherapist but for participants mm. that ha- don't have a medical background but it makes me reflect on patients I've had who are healthcare professionals, GPs, or I haven't had many physios, but I've had you know colleagues. And you you certainly you you presume a certain level of robustness in terms of their character and you know psychology. And think, well, you know, they know all about this, and maybe I haven't got to be so careful with some of my language, or I can kind of tell them how it is. But certainly just that, you know, re- you know, kind of nudges me a bit to think only because recently I've had some healthcare professionals as patients and I probably haven't been as as um, kind of alive to, to some of their distress or perceptions I've kind of presumed it as healthcare colleagues. And, you know, I can kind of be a bit more casual maybe in, in how I'm explaining things or, um, but no, it's a lovely, that's a lovely piece. Is that in a paper that's going to, come out at some point would hopefully hopefully we'll watch this space um whether we'd love to see some of this work in physiotherapy related journals because i haven't seen that sort of thing and actually it does make you stop and think in different ways to pause and and spend more time dwelling in 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 the data in a way that we do with qualitative work ollie you'll the, the amount of time you spend ruminating on on those transcripts, I, I don't know whether you can remember back to <laughs> how many hours you spent with one transcript, Dolly. You become obsessed. I mean, you become obsessed, don't you? And um, and that's part of the PhD. You know, now when I do work, it's sadly often more time constraint, and it's it's um, in combination with another million duties I've got to to get on with but as a doctoral student you know that is your purpose you're you've got it's it's a different level of depth even methodologically speaking i was just obsessed with grander theory i read all the old books and and now it's a bit more smash and grab which is a which is a real shame and when i spoke to david nichols recently he kind of sh- inadvertently shamed me in the type of work that i've been doing but he said you know you know it's very rare now that there's qualitative work that sh- which really knocks your socks off you know, which is really use expression expression weird. He didn't mean it in a derogatory sense, but really different. Um, much of it's kind of bland and um, formulaic, and probably tries to fit a more quantitative, you know, um, perception of what research should be like. And I'm just thinking, God, this is some of the recent work I've done. I wish I was brave enough to do some really kind of you know out there qual work. Yeah, and Dave works. I think he's we we've got some sort of common colleagues as well so he's uh, working with a an artist who i'm working with on a a grant so we're we're looking at filmmaking 
with participants in different countries and those participants will be sharing their film within their communities so um and and digitally enhancing the manipulating the film to represent their experience so i i I think i think different ways to make readers stop and think and and empathize but not just readers because of course we have a moment's time in time with with persons but they're living in a world where they might not have the same empathy for those from those around them so i wonder how we can better communicate these findings in a more public domain and it's great to see some of the influences like Joe Belton and Christine Price. She has the website Living Well Pain and I know she's on the executive committee of the Physiotherapy Pain Association. So guys like that really help to to promote an understanding in the wider community. And and that's where persons receiving our care are, are living and existing and those are the people that need to know, not just acad- academics sitting <laughs> at desks. Or on beds, currently. <laughs> or on beds, as, I, as, as we both currently are, I think. It's the best acoustics. Not together, <laughs> just to clarify. Claire, thank you so much for your time. You know, we started this this chat, I don't know, it, it's been such, just thinking about how where we've gone, we've started off with manual therapy and kind of a bit about biomechanics and where you started to to the kind of lived experience and the contribution of people and persons with pain. And it's interesting that just the the journey of our conversation probably reflects the journeys that we've both taken academically and clinically. I, I, I think so. And an evolution of time in both mm. of our professions. So let's wait and see where we are in, in, in another 10 or 20 years, Ollie. <laughs> Claire, thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed chatting. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.